stock market's in the toilet. Gold is almost up. It's at the same level now that it was in Australian dollar in 1980. So it's at all-time record highs or just about. And people are saying to me, strap in, young man. Here we go. Gold price is going to the moon. Now, up, until this, <laughs> up until this point, I'm looking back at 1980 and going, what dickhead paid 850 for gold? Money, governments keep printing money. So there's more and more money printed in the world and no one knows that better than people who have an interest in gold and find their way to gold, right? That if you look at the long-term ratios of gold versus commodities, gold is expensive versus commodities, but cheap versus just about everything else. On the podcast today is Sean Russo, the Managing Director of Noah's Rule. Now, Noah's Rule is one of those behind-the-scene companies. What they do is they help create hedging strategies or companies that are exposed to commodity price risk. Today, Sean and I talk about how this former chalky has seen the Australian gold mining industry change over the last 40 years and the one ratio investors should pay attention to instead of the gold price. Sean, thanks for being here. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks, Shay. Nice to see you again. It's nice to see you again as well. Now, uh, we are going to talk all things gold and some of the things that uh, you and Noah's Rule are famous for. But first and foremost, I want to talk about your background because let's be honest, no one grows up saying, you know what I want to do for a, li a living? Hedge gold miners. How did you end up here? Um, I grew up wanting to be a pilot in the Air Force um, oh. and I left school um, and that's what that's what I did. I, I spent 18 months in the Air Force, but um, somebody told me after about 18 months that Orville and Wilbur built the plane, but only Orville got to fly it, and um, it's been that way ever since. About half the people who try to be a pilot can't be, and I was one of those. So I found myself back in Sydney at a loose end. I took a job at the Stock Exchange. I worked as a chalky um, back in the day before computers, and... Um, then I answered an ad in 1984, I answered an ad in the paper to be a trainee gold dealer at, at Rothschild. Um, and so, yeah, so I really had no idea about the gold market until that point. Um, you know, and yeah, so April 1984. So I'm fast approaching my 40th, finishing my 40th year in the gold market. And um, it's, it's, been, it's been quite a ride. I mean, basically my arrival at Rothschild pretty much coincided with the beginning of the CIL, CIP, um, boom in Western Australia, you know, the likes of Alan Bond and Laurie Connell and all those colourful characters um, all got involved in, uh, in gold mining in Western Australia, you know, the sort of modern boom really started. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, I, I saw that. I saw the early days there and that's when hedging really took off. I was saying to someone the other day, I, my company Rothschild, I think a few people claim it, but we believe we did the first sort of gold hedging in Australia for... Um, you know, Southern Goldfields and Navoria back in 1985. And uh, with by the time Christmas 87 came along, there was probably a couple of million ounces of hedging in Australia. So really, yeah, I, I cut my teeth at the bank selling hedging, um, and that's where I stayed until 2004. And at that point, I then decided someone needed to help producers, an independent voice, have a company that would um, help producers figure out how to do that and get a better job out of, get a better result out of the next generation of the younger me. Uh, that is okay. I had no idea that was where the story actually started. And I've already got two follow-up questions. It's going to completely derail today's conversation. <laughs> so first of all, for look, I am on the other side of 40, but uh, a lot of the listenership of this podcast skews younger. So what is a chalky? So before computers, um, 
down on the stock exchange floor, you had a big blackboard up on the wall and it was you had to climb up a ladder to get onto the, the thing and you, I had chalk in my pocket and a piece of sponge in my hand and if someone wanted to buy BHP, they would yell out and um, everybody on the floor had a, a, a number of their company on. So Ordmanette was 33, Rivkin was 69. Should I remember those sort of things? Rivkin, there's a name I haven't heard in a while. And, and so those people would yell out and they'd say, uh, BHP, I buy it, you know, $9.50 or whatever it was back then, right? And you would write up $9.50 in their number and everyone else who wanted to be a buyer, would go, I'm a buyer, you'd write their number. And when it first started, I had to lean over the rail and read the number on their tie and write it down. And by the time I finished there, I could stand with my back to the crowd and I could just hear the voices and know what their number was and write them all up. And I was going to uni at night and... I had this funny situation where one day the lecturer turned up and he didn't have any chalk um, at, at, at university. I go, oh, I've got some. And I pulled out these sticks <laughs> of um, orange and white chalk out, out, out of my pocket. They said, what on earth do you have chalk in your pocket? I said, well, that's what I do for a living. So, <laughs> Okay, that's really, really cool. And that wouldn't exist anymore. When did chalkies stop being a job? Oh, shortly after. Um, like I finished in 84, went, went to Rothschild, I think 87 or something like that. And then the floor when electronic, you know, and then you had all the things and, you know, it's a, a dying, dying breed. So, yes, it was quite funny. Um, That's a really I mean, cool. when, I, when I arrived at the bank in 84, we didn't, we didn't have computers, you know, like we weren't using um, desktop computers or laptops. We were calculating the forward gold price with a desktop calculator. So much fun today. Okay, look, that was a really cool, uh, really cool role. I didn't even know what they were called, but I well, thank you for explaining it. Now, you touched on an interesting thing here, and again, this is very much for a part of the Australian investors that didn't even know how much this transformed Australia's gold fortunes. And the the two acronyms that you just dropped back there, the CIL and the CIP, you're talking about when um, production methods changed and low economic gold deposits suddenly became a lot more economic, aren't you? Correct. So yeah, the, the, that carbon and leach, carbon and pulp technology. And so, I mean, a lot of the gold mining, I mean, my first trip to Western Australia, and I, I cannot tell you how many times I've crossed the Nullarbor. I've driven across it once, but I, I don't know how many times I've flown across it. Um, I went out there in April 1985, and I think I visited five mining companies, you know, and um, some of these companies have been around for a very long time. But really, one of the only gold producers, Western Mining was a gold producer. A lot of the gold mines had closed down during the war. Um, World War II, and never really reopened. You know, loss of labour and things like that, and came back. So the thing that blew me away as a, as a young guy, so to put it in context, in 1984, I'm 21, I, you know, 22 when I went to West Australia for the first time visiting gold producers. These mines were literally, all they were doing was going back. You weren't, we weren't, didn't go exploring for gold. You went to where the head frame used to be and the underground mine used to be, and you'd dig a great big hole. So open pit mines, you'd go and visit them, and you'd, there'd be holes in the side of the open pit which was the old shaft. They'd uncovered the old workings and they'd find in these pits the old workings. So all they were doing was digging out the golden halo around the underground mine that the old timers couldn't see. But back in the day, if you couldn't see it, you couldn't mine it. And now, of course, you know, one, one gram, one and a half grams a tonne, um, they, they're mining and making money quite successfully, but very different technology and different extraction. So, yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting time because... That early time, it was in a sense, it was quite easy show because you just went and secured those old mines, you know, those old mine sites, drilled and invariably there was an open pit. So, and it was, I mean, it was, it was the wild west. I mean, it was. This is around the time of Alan Bond winning the America's Cup. Um, this is the emergence of uh, Robert Krepney, 
um, and the Normandy and all that. So it was, it was, and it was explorers. It was junior producers where the people own quite a lot of stock, right? This is very important to the story of hedging, that we would meet people who were geologists and a group of people and they drilled out and they, they could develop this mine and they didn't want to give too much equity away. They wanted to raise the minimum amount of equity possible to build that mine and they wanted to take debt on for the rest. Um, but in Christmas of 1987, the Aussie dollar gold price was around 700, but two years earlier it had been around 300. So a bank wanting to lend money to someone says, well, hey, you know, like it could go back to 300. I, I need you to lock in some, some gold. And so hedging allows the lender to go out in the market, secure enough gold revenue that you know when they bring the gold to the surface that they'll get enough money to meet their bills and to repay. I mean, lending money to a gold miner that doesn't have hedging is a bit like lending money to buy a house to someone who doesn't have a job. Um, you know, there's more risk associated with that yep. than lending to someone where you know they've got a government job and they'll turn up every week and they'll there will be some cash there. They they're they're a better they're a better bet. So if you're lending to mining companies, you'd like to have some price security. So that's where hedging comes into the mix and really came into the mix in that period and helped people build mining houses without having to raise much equity, which is why the people became so wealthy because they could hang on to so much of the value. They didn't have to share it with the punters. Uh, Sean, when people listen to this podcast, I want them to know that this podcast is now no longer about the listeners and it's about me learning a whole bunch of new cool things. <laughs> You've just mentioned a couple of really important years without realising. So you mentioned you talked about 1984 and then 1987 when the gold price was up near $700 yeah. in Aussie dollars. You're also talking about a period where the Australian dollar was floated for the first time, free floating. Yes. How did that? I mean, obviously because it was fixed to the US dollar for so long and it hurt the Australian economy so much, but you came of age and you started hedging when the Aussie dollar was free floating. How do you even make that market work back then? Because it would have been wildly unpredictable. Well, 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 it was, and so I mean, so let's so let's put it in context. So, let's, 1980, the significance of 1980, all-time gold high, 850 US. Everyone likes to talk about 850 US. The Aussie dollar at that time was trading at about 1.2, so it was you know it was above parity with the US dollar. It was pegged by the by the government. Um, and 1980 also happens to be the year that I finished high school. It also happens to be the year that the Dow Jones was also 850. So if we come back to talk about the day of gold ah. ratio later, one ounce of gold would buy one unit of the Dow. It's that, that ratio is 18 today, but back then one to one. So gold got to that level. Now the Russians had invaded Afghanistan. So, sounds kind of familiar, Shay. Um, I, I was in 1980. I wasn't thinking about the gold price, but I was really pissed off because I'd read James Michener's novel Caravans when I was sick in year 10, and I was going on my gap year. I was going to go to Afghanistan. So all I knew was that when the Russians invaded Afghanistan, they just screwed up my ideas of sort of being a Silk Road hippie or whatever you know my parents <laughs> had done in, in in the 60s. Um, so I went off and joined the Air Force instead. Of but um, bit of a bit of a change. But very still, logical, yes. So I arrived then April 1984 in the gold market, and it's about 300 US dollars and and falling, and it got down to 250, um, and around that time. Now around that time is when the Australian dollar floated. Now. They perhaps used to say it's when the Australian dollar sank because the minute that they they floated it, 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 it fell quite dramatically, probably reflecting the fact that it had been overvalued for quite some time. And my strongest memory is in 1985 is um, Paul Keating 
who had referred to people like myself and other people working in banks as sort of spotty-faced youth with red suspenders. I, you must have watched some movie. Um, although I have to admit, for a brief period of time, I did wear red suspenders. That's a kind of a punch, that's a kind of a that's a kind of a punch me moment. I got to say, if I look back <laughs> yeah. in, the, in the past. But anyway, yeah. I must have just watched Wall Street or something. It's horrendous to think about it. But anyway, um, so here we are, 1985. The US dollar gold price is quite low, and then Paul Keating talks something about Australia could turn into a banana republic. Yes, and the Australian dollar collapsed. Uh, it got sold off very heavily, and as it did, the eight dollar gold price went up. So in 1985, the Australian dollar gold price went up to nearly 700 um, Australian do do dollars an ounce. And all of a sudden, so this new technology making it cheaper, you've got this entrepreneurial way that small companies can raise money quickly in the equity market, go to a bank like Macquarie Bank or Rothschild, and borrow gold. Because back then we used to do gold loans. You actually used to borrow gold sell the gold, take the money, build the mine, and then repay the loan in gold. A bit like monetary metals, and some people do today, if your listeners know about them. So but so gold loans and hedging was the go. So 85, price came up a bit. 87, we had the share market crash. And after the 87 crash, gold price went up for a brief period of time. Christmas 87, US dollar gold price goes just over 500. Aussie dollar gold price is about 720. I'm not regretting at this point leaving the stock market, um, you know, the, the sort of stockbroker I worked for after being a chalky for a brief period because stock market's in the toilet. Gold is almost up. It's at the same level now that it was in Australian dollar in 1980. So it's at all-time record highs or just about. And people are saying to me, strap in, young man. Here we go. Gold prices going to the moon. You know, <laughs> to this up until this point, I'm looking back at 1980 and going, what dickhead paid 850 for gold when I've turned up? It's 250. Like, what were they thinking, right? So, so all of a sudden the world changed. So that was great. So that's go home, Christmas 87, 700. And then we had an interesting thing, and I think it's very relevant for today, that we had the 87 crash. It happened. Market cleared. And then people said, oh, the world's actually not that bad. And... Markets started to normalise. Gold came back a little bit. And in 1988 is one of the worst years on record for Australian dollar producers. So in 1987, and these, are, these moments are very, this is very important mm. for the parallels with today. In the last quarter of 1987, if you were a gold producer with hedging, every broker's analyst, every media thing was saying idiots. You know, they've locked in all this gold at 550 or 600. The gold price is now higher. You know, just give you a list of all the gold producers not to invest in, right? Six months later, the gold price has moderated a bit. The Aussie's gone up a bit. All the people with hedging, their hedging's in the money. And the same people, because we know what the media is like, present company accepted, they're all going, oh, well, these are the companies to own. They had the foresight to lock in the gold price when it was higher. And meanwhile, the people that hadn't locked in. Now, by the end of 1988... The Aussie dollar gold price that had been over 700 Christmas the previous year was down, um, had a four in front of it, mm. high fours. And that was pretty much the whole operating margin of the industry. So if you weren't hedged when you went home for Christmas in 1987, you were in all sorts of problems by Christmas 1988. So the heroes, you know, the, the roosters turned into feather duster in that, in that one year, and the people who had been kind of pilloried were the companies that went on to make the mining houses that grew over that period because costs normalised, costs fell, and people could make money in a falling price environment. And Robert de Crepney, whose son 
now um, is, is the managing director of Catalyst, James DeCrepney. Uh, Robert DeCrepney started with a single mine, um, financed it with Rothschild. Golty Moor was the name of the mine in a company called Brunswick Oil. Two decades later, he had a, um, a, a mining empire that was bought by, by Newmont. And he did that in a falling price environment. And he did that because he could produce gold for less than he could sell it for. And he hedged. That's quite an interesting point that you've brought up because let's be honest, anybody who's been in gold long enough knows that gold doesn't go up in a straight line. It goes down in a straight line really fast, but it doesn't go up in a straight line really fast. Um, So let's talk about how those companies survived from the 1980s to now because when the gold price is rising, it's easy for a company to be like, oh, no, we've got plenty of margin on uh, plenty of room in the between the cost price or the all-in sustaining cost price and the actual price per ounce. Why hedge? But as you've just pointed out, Christmas one year, everybody was in the money, and then a few months later, it was looking pretty grim. So what are the lessons the industry, I guess, collectively has learned about the importance of hedging for sustainability? Well, well, Staying in operation, I should say. Yeah, no, absolutely. And just quickly to go back again, the most important thing to remember is in 1988, the gold price fell 25%. So it wasn't wasn't dramatic, but it fell 25% at the same time that the $8 went up quite a bit. Because, you know, and, and, and it was the combination of those two things. So now that's that's unusual. That's unusual. And more recently, we've had the reverse. We've had the gold price going up and the Aussie dollar going down. But over the last um, 30 years, uh, Shay, our analysis says that about 15% of the time, you'll have periods where gold prices falling, Aussies going up, like 1988. About 15% of the time, you'll have gold prices going up in US dollars and the Aussie falling, like we've experienced the last couple of years. We call that with our clients, we call that purple patch. I mean, that's the perfect world, right? Rising yep. gold price, falling Aussie. Um, and the rest of the time, about 70% of the time, they're both trending higher or they're both trending lower. Now, interestingly, some of the best periods for $8 gold price has been when they're both trending lower and the Aussie's falling faster than the US dollar gold price. So you do have a lot of people who say, the reason I don't hedge or I don't think hedging is a good idea in Australia is because we have a natural hedge. You know, that if the gold price goes down, the Aussie will go down and therefore. Now, without wanting to be a smart aleck, if there was a natural hedge, the $8 gold price would be stagnant. It's clearly not. The relationship between the $8 and the gold is a good thing. And in a falling gold price environment, you will get benefit generally from a falling Aussie. So one of the reasons that the Australian industry did well in the 80s and 90s is it benefited from the $8 falling as the gold price was falling. It benefited from the fact that this entrepreneurial spirit in Australia meant most of the people who ran these companies were owners and they behaved like owners. And so the shareholders were there, there were outside shareholders, but those people were entrepreneurial mine owners, the equivalent of the of the Mark Clarks or the Rally Finlandsons or the Bill Beamants of, of, of today. You know, those people that you would say, look, I've invested alongside them and I've done well. But back in the day, they were building up. And so that was very much the case. So the Australian industry did quite well. And it also did it because back in those days, you got when you forward sold, you got quite a big premium called Contango. So you could lock a higher price into the future and then you could work hard at getting your costs down and the falling Australian dollar helped with that. And you had oil prices falling as well. So the operating costs. I mean, gold was falling because inflation was falling and generally commodities were falling. So, you know, but... You know, the, the nice thing about gold is different. You're digging money out of you're digging money out of the ground. And to the extent that there was a strong demand in Asia for that it was great. Now, I'd say to you, somewhere in the mid-90s, it all went off the rails. 
And all around the world, everyone started getting into the hedging game that Australians had almost been the pioneers of. And in North America, it's my observation, Shay, that most companies are not run, some of them are run by owners, but the majority are run by what I would say is agents. And so they're employees with executive options. They have a very different motivation of how they want to run. And, and they tended to start to say, well, you should own me because I produce the most gold. Therefore, when the gold price goes up, you will make the most money. And they didn't concentrate on costs and they didn't hedge and they had a different business model. And the problem was after 10 years of falling, everyone imagined next year had to be the year the price went up. <laughs> but of course, it was a 20-year bear market, right? And and so the thing was that in the eventually everyone got worn down. So there are very famous headlines in the late 90s where people thought the gold price was never going up again. And so from that very first hedge that we did with um, Southern Goldfields back in 1985, and I remember sitting up at night with my, my uh, good friend James Morrison. We worked alongside. He runs a very successful royalty fund now. We stayed up all night to do execute a 10,000-ounce hedge for a mining company in Australia because, you know, that was such a large transaction. We didn't want to give it to our colleagues in London. That 1986 or 1987, by 1999-2000, there was 110 million ounces of hedging in the world. The global gold producers had bought into this hedging idea as a way of keeping on keeping open mines that should otherwise have been shut. You know, it, it, was, it just got totally out of hand. And they'd go to a bank and say, how do I get a higher price? And people make more and more complicated derivative products to do all that. And so 110 million ounces, to put that in context, that was the equivalent to one year's gold production at the time. Oh, wow, that's huge. Yeah, so there was the equivalent of, and, and, and this is, again, the really important thing that your listeners need to understand is what is a gold hedge? A gold hedge is constructed by the bank taking someone else's gold and selling it in the market, taking the proceeds of the sale and putting them on deposit. And so when people talk about the forward gold price having a contango, that's just the money earning interest until the gold producer turns up with the gold on the allotted date to claim the money. So, so if you think about it like that, all that gold over that period, that 110 million ounces Shay, had been sold. It had been borrowed from central banks or investors and sold. So gold producers were bringing forward future supply and selling it in the market at already depressed prices. The average person in Asia loved it. They, they were buying gold year after year under 300, you know, in their local currency, that's saving. Their granddad had said to them, if you can buy it below this price, or their grandmother had said, you know, like it was cheap because they, they think gold is the way you save. Money is just for paying your bills, right? And so they were consuming all of this gold. Now, we got to the point in the early 2000s where world market changed, gold started to turn around, and a few of these gold producers went, ooh, hang on, um, that's a lot of gold sold, you know. And then over the 2000s, uh, increasingly, the gold price went up and producers were forced to go and raise equity to buy gold in the market to repay those obligations because they couldn't produce it economically enough. And probably one of the best examples is New um, Newcrest, who had about a $2 billion out of the money hedge book. So they had to raise $2 billion of equity to go in the market and buy, buy gold. So they bought $5 billion worth of gold to crystallize a $2 billion loss and gave all that gold back to the people who give them the hedges. Now, if you issue shares as a gold producer just to buy gold bars, what's the what's the benefit to the shareholder or the broader shareholders of that? You know, like 
So that created a, an environment that towards the middle half of the 2000s where gold producers were just issuing lots of paper but not making a lot more gold. And so gold shares started to underperform the gold price. And then investors increasingly said, well, if I want exposure to gold, I'm better off to buy gold than gold miners. And that was the case for many years um, after 2008, 2009. And I think that's the most important concept that I try to get across to young people coming into the market and people who've been in the market for a long period of time. And we were talking about this at Kerry's Gold Conference. If you're looking to make money out of gold and the choice is do I buy gold or do I buy a gold mining company, over time, if you can't sell those gold shares and buy more gold than you could have when you started, you haven't been worse off. So it's not that I bought a gold share for a dollar and it went to a dollar forty. I made money. Is if I bought a gold share for a dollar and it went to a dollar forty, but meanwhile the gold price has doubled. You know, I've only made a forty percent return, and I could have made a hundred percent return. So it's a good idea to always think about how many ounces of gold could I buy with this money, as opposed to how many shares could I buy, and look at how that company's been performing over time. Has it been outperforming the gold price, or? or not. And there's periods of time where they do collectively, and there's period of time where they don't. And more recently, August of last year, and for some companies, August of the year before, you started to see investors generally leaving the gold market. And where they've been leaving the gold shares, those gold shares have been falling disproportionately to gold, because there are people out there that can only buy gold and will never buy gold shares, like central banks. Yep. So to the extent that investors who bought gold are selling gold at the moment, central banks are buying that gold. But people who bought gold shares and now want to sell them, there's there's not that many people that want to buy them. And so you have to push the prices lower to find that appetite. And so gold shares have been underperforming the gold price for between one and two years. Um, you've raised an interesting point, and this takes me a little bit it, – it, it's actually combining three things that you mentioned in your answer before, and that's currency weakness, high costs, and the gold price. Now, we're in this really weird position right now where we've got spot gold rising, the Aussie dollar – falling almost in a straight line at the moment. But we've got rising uh, oil prices, which are going to be putting pressures on mining uh, miners' margins. So where is the balance here? Because I know uh, globally the oil and sustaining cost is certainly rising for miners as well as across Australia. So how does that hedging balance come in for miners at the moment? Okay, great, great question. So first let's deal with a company that's not hedged at all. Yep. A company that's not hedged at all, 100% of its revenue is in US dollar gold, all converted to Aussie. So the falling exchange rate has an impact of 100% on its revenue. If oil represents 10% of its operating costs or 20% of its operating costs, yes, the exchange rate is impacting the oil price, but they're getting far more value, they're far more value from the falling exchange rate on their revenue line than they are on their, on their cost line. Yeah? So whereas someone who manufactures something in Australia and sells it in Australian dollars... So if you're, you know, if you're just making furniture in Australia and you buy all the stuff in Australia, but the fuel that you use, you are getting impacted by that, that falling exchange rate and you're not getting any offset because you're not an exporter. You're just getting the negative. Now, then you come to an interesting point. If you're a gold producer and you've locked in gold in the past at prices for good reasons because you wanted to have certain revenue, if oil prices continue to go up, you may not get the margin in the future that you imagined when you hedge. So 
for the last three years, we have been saying to our clients, if you hedge gold, we think you should hedge as much oil as you would need to produce that gold because, ah. because the relationship is very strong. Now, I'm a great believer in ratios, uh, Shay. Um, money, governments keep printing money. So there's more and more money printed in the world and no one knows that better than people who have an interest in gold and find their way to gold, right? So, but if you go back to 1900 and you look at how many barrels of oil you could have bought for an ounce of gold and you look today, today you can buy about 18 barrels of oil for an ounce of gold. 18 barrels of diesel in Australia, actually. Um, overall, from 1900 to 20. 23, the long-term average of that ratio is about 12 or 13. So okay. 12 or 13 barrels to the ounce. It's been down to about six. It's been up until the last five years, up about 20 and came back off. So you had various economic cycles that would drive that. But in general, you could, you could if you kept gold, if you had gold in 1900, you could buy as much oil today as you could in 1900, right? So because the printing of paper money hasn't affected the relationship between those things. There's been technology changes and things, but generally. So ratios are very good at allowing you to understand where you are in a sort of a broader historical cycle. So at the moment, we're saying to our clients, oil looks expensive at the pump, but relative to gold, oil is still quite cheap mm. because in the last two years, it, you, it took you, you could only get eight barrels for an ounce when the oil price was high, you know, 18 months ago. Yep. And so, you know, much better to sort of lock it in now when you've got that relationship than, than, than before. So, you know, but yes, yeah, so, so oil is impacting the, the margins absolutely. If you've locked in your revenue, we certainly encourage people to also lock in the costs to the extent they can. So they're locking in the margin they perceive. Um, that's a very important point because in the early 2000s, producers had locked in $1,000 gold and they had $30 oil in their model. And when they got to the future, the gold was a thousand, but the oil was one hundred and twenty dollars a barrel. That's a big change to your operating margin, and you know, an oil um, has the potential to be very, very, very volatile, as, as we know, for a whole host of reasons. I mean, in, in uh, from the COVID low to the high um, uh, eighteen months ago, 12, 18 months ago, it increased fivefold in eight dollar terms for a barrel of diesel. Yeah, that's look. I've um, I'm, I have a very big car with a hundred and fifty liter tank, so trust me, I'm highly sensitive to the oil price. Um, so what you're telling me here is that there is appetite in the market for switched on gold miners to understand this relationship and know that you don't just really hedge one. It's always best to hedge the two because uh, oil accounts are almost ten percent of your operating costs. Uh, look, the people that, that that you want to be the most cautious of are the people that are in remote sites and are burning diesel for power. Yeah, I mean, so people, if they're just running their underground fleet, um, that's generally, it's not such a big percent. But, but let's, let's not forget, if someone told you in 2020, I'm not going to hedge oil at $50 a barrel in the middle of COVID because it's a small part of my operating cost, didn't have, it wasn't a small part of operating cost when it was $250 a barrel sometime before, right? I mean, obviously that's significant. But generally the people that are most exposed are those people burning diesel for power. So if you're talking about you know, um, operations in parts of Africa, operations in other parts of the world, some parts of Australia. If you're not on the grid or you don't, you're not getting gas. They're, they're the people that are, are sort of the most exposed. A very good example, and I'll, I'll, they're a client of ours, but Romelius, I had a lady come up to me at Kerry's Gold Conference and said, oh, I love Romelius. They're so clever, those people. They hedge their gold and they've hedged the diesel. And I said, oh, 
fantastic. You know, they, they do. But yes, that's a, that's a very deliberate strategy. They've done it very cleverly. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're all about trying to secure their future. They're not speculating on oil. They're not speculating on gold. They're saying we want to have a certain level of revenue in there so we can continue to build and grow the business that we've, we've built and grown very successfully over a decade. Uh, the reason why I've doubled down on that point is, uh, and as this lady, obviously, I didn't even know she said this to you at the Gold Conference, made that comment. For investors listening, this is an excellent point that in a rising environment, these are costs that uh, gold miners do need to make sure that they, you know, they've got line of sight on the curve here. And that's exactly what we've pointed out by hedging the two. So that's what I sort of wanted to drill down on. It's basically the investor cheat sheet on what you need to look for when going through a gold miner's books. Now, I am at risk of taking up too much of your time today. And I've got two more questions yep. for you. First of all, we've got the gold price down. Uh, I think it's what, about 7% or 8% off all-time highs. Do you dare want to put forward a price forecast of where it might end up, let's say the next 12 months, because we're getting a little too close to the end of the year to make forecasts as far as I'm concerned. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm going to answer in a slightly different way, and then I will come back to the price issue. At Kerry's conference last year, so 13, 14 months ago, Someone asked that question and I said then that if you have things that you sell today and with the money you buy gold, I think in general you will be able to buy more of those things back with gold or you will not have to sell all of that gold to buy those things back. So, and I think that's, you know, gold is something that you own. You know, like if you if you have that view that it's a, it's a way that you save and you preserve value, you have to think about it in the way that you want to accumulate more gold over time. I met a man in Indonesia some years ago and he said that the gold price had just gone up a lot. And so, um, you know, he had sold some gold to buy to buy a house in Indonesia. And then sometime later, he, you know, he'd sold the, the house and, and you know, and I, and I he bought gold again. And I said, well, did you, make, did you make money? And he said, well, I have more gold now than I had before. I said, yeah, but what was the price? He said, no, you're missing the point, Sean. He said, I just want, you know, I want to accumulate gold because in the long run, I believe the more gold I have, the more secure that I'll be. Um, and in Indonesia, that's certainly been the case because the devaluation of the rupee mm-hmm. makes the Aussie dollar look tame. So, you know, rupee gold prices almost looks like a 45-degree 45, 45 angle, right? Yeah. So um, as does the Indian rupee price, which is why Indians love to hold gold. So I'm not suggesting the Australian dollar is going the way of the Indonesian rupee um, or the rupee, but... You know, it's the general thing. Governments will keep printing money. And if interest rates go up a lot, people go, oh, it's less interesting to own gold because interest rates are high and therefore you, you've got this alternative way to earn money. But if interest rates go up enough, the only way governments are going to pay their own interest bills is to print more money. So, so I think um, in the short run, my view is that gold is a better bet than, than most things. I think it's, um, except perhaps oil, and, and um, copper and some other things that if you look at the long-term ratios of gold versus commodities, gold is expensive versus commodities, but cheap versus just about everything else. So, so you know, I think in a portfolio, it, it would make sense to be a little bit broader than that. But, but then to the price question, we are sitting here under 2000. We made 2000 a couple of years ago, we've retraced, um, we've hit it again, we've retraced, we've hit it again. The chart to me looks very much like it did in 2007, 2008 as we were getting to 1,000. Markets, markets love big numbers, right? Don't they? Love, they just love big they, numbers. Yeah. 
And you need something big to get the market through a big number. And I look around at the moment and I can't see what that is. I can't see what the thing is that takes us through that big number and holds us there. Maybe we might pop up there, stick our head up and whack a mole at the market, you know, the Asians and, and people who've been saving it will decide to sell it to go and buy something else that they that they, they value or whatever. But I can't see what drives us through. So then you were talking to Nick Frappel the other day and he's got a really good way that, that he, he looks at things from ABC and I, he and I share a lot of views. But one of the things, he talked about real rates and he kind of hangs a lot of his thesis about gold off, you know, where real rates are. That's a bit complicated for me to figure out real, real rates. Too many calculations. <laughs> I, I have a simpler way of looking at things. And one of the things that I believe, and, and uh, Pierre Lassonde, who's been in the media this week um, in Denver, um, who, you know, is really one of the, like the, 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 the high priests of the gold market, if you like, and the success that he has created in his royalty company and various things. He came to Australia in the late 80s and talked about the Dow Gold Ratio. Mm-hmm. And he said 30 to 1 currently, you know, you gold producers. And this is very late in the piece where I thought gold producers were doing much hedging. They were trying to keep mines open. It should have been shut. So, you know, we, hedging had stopped being a sensible thing and was now a gamble in the late 90s. He said to Australians, what are you doing? You know, gold is ridiculously cheap. In 1980, go back to the year I had finished high school, 20 years earlier, 21 years earlier, 850 Dow, 850 gold, one to one. You could sell one ounce of gold and buy one of each share in the Dow Jones. Now, you could have sold those shares you bought 20 years ago and bought 30 ounces of gold. And so Pierre Lassonde was saying, gold is just stupidly cheap. And now, he said that, it went to 40 to one. I think the Dow gold topped out at 40 to one, right? But then it started to roll over and up to the 2011 high, it got down to five to one, from 40 to one. So gold from 2000 to 2011, 12 outperformed generally the Dow gold, the Dow Jones ratio by a factor of eight. Right? Yeah. Then it started to go back up again. And in 2013, famously, when all of the gold bugs said we were robbed when the gold price fell dramatically in 2013, all that really happened is the Dow Gold ratio started to go up, right? Now, when the Dow Gold ratio is rising, generalist investors say equities are outperforming gold. I don't need to own gold. I'm a generalist investor. But I can tell you when the Dow, when the gold, Dow Gold ratio is going down and that therefore gold is outperforming general equities, there are many, many fund managers in the world that say, I hate gold. It doesn't pay any interest. I can't value it, right? But I have to own it because it's outperforming general equities. And whatever it is, I will have some in my portfolio. And that's why the gold ETF balances rose through that period because gold was outperforming equities. But in 2012, that relationship started to reverse. And those generalist investors who'd accumulated gold over a long period of time, all looking at the same ratio said, time, safe to go back in the water, the market is telling me that equities are now outperforming gold and they sold their gold. A lot of people sold their gold in a very narrow window of time and that pushes the gold price down a very long way. Right? We've worked our way up from 5 to 20. We're currently at 18. I'm watching that very closely. A share market crash of some sort or a downtrend in US equities such that gold starts to outperform general equities again, 
people will run back into gold in a big way. That might be the catalyst to get us through. The other thing would be the added thing that if we do have a, a share market uh, crash of some kind or a really big sell-off, maybe because they've kept interest rates too high for too long, governments will go back to printing money. You know, <laughs> that, they, they'll, they'll wait as long as they can. And I heard someone say Jay Powell will resign before he does that. Well, he may resign. But whoever comes in after him, they do. And I think people that are much smarter than me, whose opinions I value very highly around the gold, they're all watching for that. Like in 2007, eight. why did we go through 1,000? QE. Yes, People that's right. People started to say, oh, my goodness, they're going to print money. And if there's a finite amount of gold in the world and there's a potentially infinite amount of paper, why would you sell your gold at 1,000 when there's 20% more money in the world? You wouldn't. You know, you've got to, you want 20% more for your gold. And I think so we're looking for that moment. So I'm watching the Dow Gold Ratio very closely. It goes below 16. I think that's probably going to be a trigger that's telling us something. If it gets above 2,000 on any news, I'll probably, without any news, I'll probably be suspicious. And certainly the minute the governments start to just go, oh, well, we have to, you know, we have to save the, have to save the world again. Uh, and let's face it, they only put up interest rates. So the next time we have a problem, they can drop them quickly. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. You know, uh, they'll go back. The leopard never changes its spots. Um, and, you know, I think so at the moment. It's interesting. Central banks are buying gold and they're absorbing what the producers are selling. And so we're holding in this, this thing. But we really need generalist investors to buy, to buy gold. Um, and I think to do that in a meaningful way, it has to be outperforming general equities. And so that's, that's the, the relationship that I'm really looking for. In the, me in the, me in the, in the meantime, it's an uptrend. You know, it's, it's, it's looking okay. Um, but there are a couple of levels quite close, like the 200-day moving average, and if it drops below that, there's a lot of people that just won't play. Um, yep. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of finely balanced. But I think my view is we're in a retracement in a bull market. What, I just don't know what it is that ends the retracement um, that really, you know, takes us to that next, next level. But, you know, it, it feels like there's something out there, Shay, but when... You know, who knows? But in the meantime, if it's holding its value against other things or improving it, other things is still a sensible thing to own. And especially while the Aussie dollar is crashing, oh, well, not crashing, that's a bit extremist language of me coming out right there, but while the Aussie dollar is falling, gold has turned out to be a valuable hedge. I, I absolutely. There's no doubt that there's been significant benefit from that. I do, I do worry going forward about that. And in the early 2000s, then people should keep this in mind, is in the early 2000s, $8 had been very weak in the late 90s. $8 gold was quite strong. US dollar gold turned around. I think there's a period from 2001 to 2006 or 2002, 2007, where the US dollar gold price went up 70% and the $8 gold price remained unchanged yeah. because, the, because the $8 was going up as fast as the gold. And that, I have to say that to my peril, that, that my fear of the $8 going up held me out of the gold market. I should, should have bought more gold in the long run. Then, it, then it, took, it did eventually take off. But... For a long period of time, it was Aussie dollar gold just kept on going sideways because yep. the A dollar, and it wasn't really, um, you know, uh, until the gold price really took off that it just went up at a much faster rate than than, than the A dollar did. Uh, listen, Sean, I know you have somewhere to be in two minutes, but I will not let you leave this podcast without th uh, one asking one question. Now, when I last saw you, you and I were sipping champagne at Kerry's Gold Conference, the Australian Gold Conference. However, if we're in a bar now, what cocktail would I be buying you instead? Negroni. Always. A Negroni. It's always a Negroni. You're my second guest that likes a Negroni. Did you know that? I'm going to have to go drink a Negroni.
I don't, I don't think I've had one. <laughs> and right. not a good idea after dinner. They're a good idea. <laughs> if I start drinking the grannies after dinner, I know it's time to go home, but it's a great pre-dinner drink. Oh, look, if you see me on the margaritas, order me an Uber, don't worry. Um, okay, listen, Sean, this has been a fantastic conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much for carving out some time today. Uh, and thanks for being a guest. Yeah, lovely to see you. Thanks for the opportunity. See you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Make sure you're following Cocktails and Commodities so you never miss out on what rocks are making news, which commodities are moving markets, and the company's trying to get it out of the ground.